If you're thinking about the long-term prospects of one of these two coins, I have a very optimistic view on Bitcoin Cash. Listen to the Matt Brown Show. This is the Matt Brown Show. Matt Brown, Matt Brown, Matt Brown Show. How's it guys? Now it's not often that you sell out two untested events back to back in any industry. But fortunately for myself and the Matt Brown show, this is exactly what has happened. And I'm incredibly grateful to each and every one of you for all the support that you have been giving to the Matt Brown show and the cryptocurrencies, blockchain, Bitcoin and the future of money events. Now the Cape Town leg of the tour was a resounding success with about 300 people filling the net bank auditorium in the VNA waterfronts. At the previous events, we had quite a philosophical discussion about cryptocurrencies and the blockchain. So in this episode, we bring it down to the real world and discuss the applications of the blockchain and cryptocurrency, both from a trading and business perspective. We also had a change in panel with Van and Van Royen from Luno joining the previous panelists of Simon Dingle and Lorian Gamaroff. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Matt Brown Show. This is the second installment of the cryptocurrencies, blockchain, Bitcoin, and the future of money events, only this time in Cape Town. Say, how's it, Cape Town? Way better than Joburg. (laughs) So I guess from my side, we had a very philosophical debate about what this all actually means for the man in the street. And I think for me, one of the common threads that really came out of this is trust. Right, I'm sure you guys will agree. Uh, so why don't we kick it off? I'm going to open it up to you guys on the floor. But if you think about baboon bones that Simon mentioned last time, these were also forms of trust before even the tally sticks, right? But I mean, in your guys' expert opinions, are we going back to an ancient form of trust? Yeah, I mean, if you look at trust as something that we invest in a central authority, that's a fairly new idea. It's an idea that served us well for a few centuries. You mentioned tally sticks earlier before we started recording. That's one of my favorite examples of ancient money, and they're also rice stones. Uh, You mentioned baboon bones in Africa. That's really where money came from. It came from a peer-to-peer decentralized system of transactions and trust. And that served us very well too, but of course it doesn't scale. To scale money and to scale economics, we really needed these centralized platforms. So without dissing them too hard, they've had their day. But cryptography and triple entry accounting has given us a way to go back to a more ancient form of conducting transactions without needing central authorities. Yeah, and I definitely wouldn't say that it's the end of trust or the end of anything really. I think people go a bit overboard whenever a new technology comes along. I think it's more the scaling back maybe of trust, but it's not the end of anything. Despite Bitcoin early on, like the biggest ardent supporters of Bitcoin were like anarchistic, you know, down with it, down with the government, down with banks. So I think there's just change in place. I think you're going to see smaller banks. You're going to see less trust required. It's not that trust won't exist. It's just that we might have trustless systems where it's not required. So it's scaled down. 
Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think what we have now is this feeling that we can't trust the people in charge. And it would be nice if we could have some cold-hearted robot that is only programmed to do one thing and it never can deviate, it can never change its mind. You know, the rules that are programmed into the system are set in stone and that means the whole idea of trust now is that we actually don't need to trust it anymore because it is just the way it is. It's definitely shifting away from faith in humankind and faith into robots. So is it fair to say then that we are moving into a decentralized global economy? And if we are, what are its implications for the man in the streets and everyone here? Maybe I can start with some of the things. I think the idea of transfer, let's just say transfer, the transfer of ideas, maybe the transfer of of wealth, the transfer of data... All of these are in some way becoming international, becoming borderless. If you have to think about 30 years ago, you have to send a letter by mail. And if you had to do that across border, it's a completely different process. Or if you physically have to travel. But through something like email, that just doesn't exist anymore. You don't think about it. You don't think what country is this going to. The same with text or, or voice or video, film. The one thing that's not reached that is money and then by proxy commerce. Like when we shop, we think about, oh, is this shop in South Africa or not? Is it within the borders of my country? And if they are, then I can assume, okay, it'll be integrated with the financial system and they will accept and understand South African rand and I can pay them. But where we are now is we're heading into a period where at the end of it, you would transfer Money, you transfer something of value, not necessarily just money, but that's the one I'm most familiar with. You'll be able to transfer money without this concept of it going across a border. And that connectedness did not exist before, and we very fast approaching it. I think it's a more natural way for information to flow. If you look at the topology of information networks, they generally start as like a wheel and spoke model where you have these central authorities or gatekeepers or sometimes it's just as simple as somebody who's smart enough to actually get the content out there in a central repository that other people can access. The natural progression is always towards a democratized, decentralized system of nodes that are peer-to-peer, essentially. So I think this is a natural progression. We've seen it in media the rise of Web 2.0 and the death of the newspapers. It's a wave that sweeps through just about any industry, rather, that deals with information flows, and, and finance's day has come, always coming. Lorian, your view? Well, humans are creative, and money has always been that thing that greases the wheels of commerce and trade, and part of being creative is removing friction, and uh, we will always strive to try and find the most frictionless way of moving value around the world, and Money has changed from all different kinds of things. Money isn't what it is, it's what it does. And it looks like we finally found a much more efficient form of money and one that we can, again, don't have to trust human beings to manage. I think it's also fair to say that we haven't figured this all out, right? So, I mean, we went from tally sticks to gold to digital cash and now cryptocurrencies. So what's next? And it feels to me like, to your point in the previous episode, Sai, you were talking about like we discovered fire and all we knew what to do was actually burn ourselves. <laughs> and then we kind of worked out that we had to, oh, we can cook a chicken or whatever it was that we caught that day. Same thing with electricity. You were saying like when we discovered electricity, some guy literally 
got killed sort of thing. <laughs> and then we worked out we could, it could power houses and so forth. So having said that, this is an evolution, right, to your point around progression. So let's table the view. I mean, there's no right or wrong answers here, but I mean, what does the future of money in the real world actually look like? As you were alluding to, it's a curious side of, of humanity that we discover things before we know what to do with them, and you gave us some examples. You know, we discovered the internet, and we used it for rudimentary messaging in the beginning. I think we're only really now starting to figure out what the internet is good for, right? Pictures of cats and babies. But <laughs> maybe we'll be able to do more with it than that in time. But, you know, blockchain is still in its absolute infancy. We've had the internet for the better part of three decades, depending where you choose to start measuring from. And we're only getting to grips with the fact that it's really awesome for baby pictures now. We don't know where blockchain is headed. So to even try and imagine what comes next is impossible. I always, there's, there's a quote that was attributed to Bill Gates. We don't know if Bill Gates really said that or not. As Abraham Lincoln said, don't believe everything you read on the internet. But, but maybe Bill Gates said this. It's a good quote regardless. He said, we always overestimate the change that we think will occur in two years and underestimate the change that will actually occur in ten. So I've probably butchered that quote, but it's something to that effect. I mean, we just have no idea where blockchain technologies will take us ten years from now. Just like, you know, even in 2006, a year before the iPhone landed, we really had no idea that smartphones were on the way and where they would take us. Yeah, it's always easier to look back from where you are, right? If we look back now and we tell kids, oh, we used to pay with checks, I mean, it's comical. And maybe if you go back, if you told people earlier, oh, one day you'll pay by swiping a piece of plastic, they would also think, no, that's that would never exist. But as you mentioned, I think money, we're not at a point of any revolution. Some people kill me for saying that because they, they think it's revolutionary. I think it's merely a logical step in the evolution of money. But as to where we are right now, I mean, it's anybody's guess. There's a lot of similarities between early days and the internet. Like there was a lot of potential, but people didn't know what would become of it. If you told somebody in the early 90s, oh, everybody's going to walk around with a small computer in their pocket, press a button and a car would pick them up, they'd think you're crazy. But we're there, you know, and that was in a very short amount of time. I think with money, what would happen is initially you will just have currencies like Bitcoin, maybe Bitcoin or blockchain technology, facilitate things in the financial world real soon, if not already. So let's say, for instance, the transfer of what hypothetically could happen is I wanted to send five rand from here to Kenya to pay somebody for a song that he put on his website. I could make that payment probably still in rand. It will still be five rand that could get converted into a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. That could be transmitted really quickly to that recipient and converted back into Kenyan shillings. So I think initially, like, I don't think we're going to go away from the currencies that we know and understand and that's integrated in our accounting software and banks. But maybe we would reach a point where there's more dominant currencies. Like anytime you globalize, there's unfortunately the death of some things. The same way some languages die out, when there's more globalization, more currencies will die out. And the trend is clear. There has, I think maybe 10 years ago, there were 200 currencies. There's 180 today. There's going to be fewer and fewer. And whether that's a digital currency remains to be seen. But digital currency will definitely play a part in the usage and the flow and the record keeping of that money and the financial institutions involved with them. 
the future of money looks like Bitcoin, FYI. If you haven't noticed, he's a Quancherian yet. You know what I mean? So, Captain Quancherian, thank you. So, last time we were speaking, we were actually tabling the idea that if you think about the gold standard, right, and how that backed fiat currency for a long time, and if we are moving into a cryptocurrency-based ecosystem, that what would be the alternative? And... The view from, I think it was Lorian, he's a big proponent of Bitcoin. If you haven't listened to the previous interview, I'll reshare that out. But um, it's interesting for me because is Bitcoin going to be the gold standard? And what also came out from the last show was that there's problems with Bitcoin, right, from a transaction speed processing perspective. So Fazam, who unfortunately couldn't be here tonight, gave this really great example. He said, if we stopped the world from spending Bitcoin, the whole world, and we only enabled Venezuela to spend it. What that would mean is that every Venezuelan would only be able to make one financial transaction every two months. To give you an idea of some of the scaling issues that exist within Bitcoin. So my question to you guys is, let's talk about real world applications, right? What are some of the common use cases for Bitcoin today? There's a lot of people who are clearly trading in it. But what about the use case for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? The research that we've done shows that there's basically two reasons why people have Bitcoin or why they would be interested in it. The first one is that it's their only means to an end. So it's a means of payment. So it might be somebody who wants to buy something overseas, but they don't have a credit card. Or they need to send a small amount of money to someone or their account got hacked and they need to pay ransomware. Like they need to pay a bounty. There's literally no other way to pay but Bitcoin. So it's a payment method. The other use case is that it is a store of value, a store of wealth. And like you alluded earlier, like a digital gold. So those are the two current use cases for Bitcoin. And generally, if you think about it, for money perhaps. Now, out of that sprouts a lot of different things. I mean, it sprouts commerce, it sprouts trading, it sprouts payment processing, it sprouts a lot of different things. But the idea that majority of people who use it, however, all the research shows that right now, today, people are using Bitcoin as a digital store of value. That's where it is right now. And that's a good thing. There's a natural progression here. And as Vanna said, Bitcoin's very much in the store value phase right now. That's good. We want people speculating on Bitcoin. We want them trying to you know, get rich overnight on Bitcoin. And we want them to hold it for the long term. The institutional money hasn't even arrived yet. There's a wall of money just waiting to descend upon this industry once the first ETFs get approved and the institutional money really starts flowing into the space. I mean, we might think that Bitcoin is very expensive today and we might think it's a bubble today. But really, the amount of money in the system is so minuscule when you compare it to other asset classes, when you do it as a percentage of the world economy. Bitcoin is, is really still quite tiny at what's the, the current market cap, $150 billion total for all cryptocurrency. You know, Once the institutional money starts flowing in, things are going to go crazy. Does that mean the price will consistently go up? No, we're going to have more dips. But really, the discussion of the price is is short-sighted and not very interesting. Um, if you look at the progression and the dissipation of the innovation that Bitcoin represents, that store value phase is very important, but we're nowhere near Bitcoin 
or any other cryptocurrency really being used as a transactional currency in any meaningful way. In fact, even as a store of value, there's nothing meaningful happening at the moment. It's interesting. It's starting to get onto the front page of the Wall Street Journal. CNBC is talking about it every night, but the real money hasn't even arrived yet in the store of value phase. So the store of value phase and hodling, this will carry on for some time before we get to the kind of transactional concerns for Bitcoin. And there's a lot of philosophizing about the design of the network to actually be adopted in this pattern. My point is Bitcoin is exactly what it needs to be right now, which is a good digital store of value. As you put it, the gold standard of cryptocurrency. There are other cryptocurrencies filling other niches like Ethereum for smart contracts, and we can get into that. Things like IOTA, which is quite interesting with its Tangle chain without blocks. It's very difficult to even think about, but <laughs> still getting my head around IOTA, but you know, designed specifically for the Internet of Things and, and to provide a, a network of value there. So there's lots of experimentation, but I like this idea of Bitcoin kind of being this constant, as you said, like the gold standard. And right now it is, in terms of store value the best we've got. I think the one thing, and Simon nailed it when he said the exciting thing about Bitcoin is the technology, but the reality is that there's a dollar or rand value tied to that technology, how much people value it. So again, to use the comparison of like early internet days, if 30 years ago I told you there's this great thing that we found that was discovered and built by people in many different countries, and it's called email. It's going to be huge. But you could, let's say, invest in it. There would be a monetary value in it. Um, initially, people would be like, ah, you're trying to sell me snake oil. Like, I don't understand. I don't trust this. But the value becomes more and more clear as more and more people have it. Like, if you're the first person with email, it's not very useful. But then one day you realize, oh, but all of these people have, and, you know, network effects unlock it. But again, the key difference is that there is now a dollar value attached to people understanding that technology. And that's creating these crazy swings up and down, up and down, up and down. Which is interesting if you're a trader, maybe not when you want to create... Bitcoin kind of needs to become boring. It needs to be a stable like flat exchange rate so that people can you know, accept it readily without always needing to update the exchange rate. But yes, the technology part is the important bit. The exchange rate part is the fun and exciting, but the technology is the most important part. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. (laughs) 
So Bitcoin is a technology and just like every other technology that you've ever seen in your life before, it needs to evolve and grow so it can encompass all the things that we want to encompass. The way it is right now is uh, it, it has to perform a function like what Simon was saying, where it's something that you hold. You can't use it as a currency. And that's not just because it's not useful as a currency. The way the technology is created right now, the way in its form, although there's now a segregated witness and all that, it hasn't been possible to use it as a currency because fees are way too high. And so when we change it and as we evolve it, it will become something that every Venezuelan can use and spend like much like you would use a credit card. And one day you will be able to buy your coffee and you will be able to make microtransactions on Bitcoin. But the funny thing is when we have something that suddenly becomes valuable, we all feel like, oh my God, we don't want anything to happen to it that disrupts that and suddenly it makes it lose value. And so the more value you have tied up in Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, but let's use Bitcoin as an example, the more cautious you become. And uh, there's been a lot of debate and a lot of trouble around Bitcoin right now because people are actually terrified that as soon as you disrupt things, as soon as you change something about Bitcoin that makes it so magical, it's going to suddenly lose value and all those millions that you're making in Bitcoin are going to plunge. And unfortunately, it's gotten to that point right now where there was all these things called the scaling debates where people were deciding what should we do with Bitcoin because now it has to be this thing that you hold because you can't spend it. It's too expensive. Uh, what do we do? And there's been this big, long drama about what to do next with Bitcoin and finally reached ahead less than a month ago where Bitcoin split. It actually forked because the community was undecided which way it should go. And just prior to that, everybody was terrified. They said, no, 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 if Bitcoin splits and suddenly you have 21 million Bitcoin and 21 million something else Bitcoin, it's going to completely destroy its whole store of value property, you know, this idea that we have a fixed supply. But the amazing thing that happened with the split was that we realized, hang on, it didn't die, it wasn't destroyed, and now what we have are these two versions of Bitcoin out there in the wild. And uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in a kind of natural selection kind of way, which is how Bitcoin should evolve. It's almost like a creature, you know, as it mutates, the good mutations make it strong and the bad mutations make it weaker, and that one dies off. I think what we are looking at right now is a very exciting time where the Bitcoin that we have, and in my view, the split, it's called Bitcoin Cash, is going to suddenly make it possible to see how Venezuelans will be able to make every single transaction on that blockchain. So it's a very exciting time right now. Bitcoin as a technology is growing and evolving. And uh, I think it's going to surprise us yet. You know, I think it's going to eventually become that thing that isn't just a store of value. Because as a store of value, if you can't use it, it's useless. And it shouldn't be valuable at all. What's going to make it useful is you being able to use it every single day for every single transaction. And I think that's now coming along. Which goes back to our point about use cases, right? And the lack thereof. I guess from an investment perspective, there's obviously Bitcoin Cash and what have you. And interestingly, I did a mailer to all of you guys and I got a whole bunch of feedback around, you know, to tell us what you want to find out about. And interestingly, the large majority of feedback or questions from you guys was about regulation. And it's interesting because if you think about Matt Brown coins, <laughs> it's a thing. But initial coin offerings. So if you're an investor, there's obviously buying Bitcoin and trading cryptocurrencies, but there's also this thing called in initial coin offerings or token sales or crowd sales. And these also represent, to your point around the store value, interesting ways for you to essentially buy a share of the future value of a particular coin. So interestingly, 
this is a massively deregulated industry. So all of you sitting with Bitcoins right now, there's a guy that mailed me earlier, he said he's got 250,000 rands worth of investments into Bitcoin. I met with another investor earlier this week, he's got literally hundreds of millions in Bitcoin. And so my question to you guys is, do we as a people need regulation? And I know you welcome it, uh, Lorian, so maybe we can start with you, but do we as a people need regulation? And if we do, what are its implications for, for us? Well, I don't think Bitcoin can be regulated. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about regulation. I think what we're talking about is the businesses that operate and provide value around Bitcoin. If I'm a business and I'm holding your Bitcoins, I'm sure you're going to want to know that I'm being audited and I'm being checked to see that I'm not going to suddenly disappear with your coins. You know, you want accountability. So when I talk about regulation, I just mean just like the usual regulation that happens with every business that you engage with every day. Luno. Do you want Luno to be regulated? Do you want to make sure that they're being checked? Of course you do. So that's what I mean. But Bitcoin itself, it just makes no sense to say that Bitcoin is regulated. It's like saying regulate the internet. You don't regulate the internet. You regulate the businesses on top of the internet. Yeah, I think regulators can generally do one of three things whenever new technology comes around that might hold a threat or, or you know, threat to its people. The first thing is they can ban it. They can say, oh, we think this is dangerous or, you know, opens up people to crime, so we're banning it, which you can't do with Bitcoin because of its decentralized properties. The second thing that they can do is embrace it immediately and they can say, oh, yes, we are a pro-Bitcoin country and government and, you know, blah, 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 you know, digital currencies are the best. The danger of doing that, however, is if something goes wrong, they've got way more to lose than to gain. So the third thing that they can do, and this is what most governments do, is nothing they wait to see what the outcome is, what the true impact is. There's been fads before, and there'll be fads in the future. So they want to make sure it's not a fad. And once they create regulation, they need to enforce it. That's the other thing. But where we are right now is there is not a bank and not a government in any country in the world, including North Korea, that is not looking at Bitcoin and what it can do, what it can do in its positives and in its negatives. So from a regulation point of view, what Lorraine mentioned, that is important. And I strongly believe regulation is not just needed, but it is coming. The main concern that regulators have is that they want to protect their citizens. They want to make sure that there's not something new and now everybody puts all their money into this thing and then uh, a malicious actor steals the money. So to a lesser extent, a lot of countries, and this is just the world of finance, is they're worried about money laundering, not getting all their taxes, what they should, and terror financing in certain countries. So where we are right now is governments and regulators place pressure on those points of conversion. They know they can't really do anything once it is Bitcoin, but that point of conversion between, let's say, Rand and Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin to Kenyan shillings or pounds, they can regulate those businesses. So they can come to us and say, are you using your customers' deposits, their Rand deposits, you know, for like finding, you know, dodgy other investments? And what do you have in place to make sure that you don't get hacked? And the, the same way that they regulate banks and make sure banks don't, don't run off with, with people's money. But they are all looking at it. And in particular to South Africa, we want more regulation. I think it'll come. But I also think that the Bitcoin market share right now is just too small. $150 billion worldwide for all digital currencies combined. You know, it's the market cap of some companies, right? It's not a big enough thing for them 
I think, to worry about right now. But just because something is not regulated does not mean it's illegal. Like online shopping is not regulated. There's existing laws that protect consumers. Like if I wanted to create a website and I say, okay, I'm selling iPhones, buy it from me and you pay with your credit card, you make a bank transfer to my, to my bank account and I never ship that iPhone to you. Online commerce doesn't need to be regulated. There's existing laws to make sure that I'm not stealing money from you. And a lot of the existing laws cover digital currencies or maybe even cover exchanges, right? The, the various acts that are in place. The problem is Bitcoin is a little bit like money, but it's something new. It's a store of value, but it's also something new. And it's all these fringe cases like ICOs and all everything new on the inside, once it is Bitcoin, that I think most regulators are struggling with. Just merely buying Bitcoin, like you covered by existing laws. I think the interesting thing is that if you almost by design, by the time Bitcoin is big enough for regulators to have to worry about it, it'll be too big for them to do anything about. By the time regulation really has a role to play on the edge of the network in those fiat conversion phases, we won't need to or want to convert to fiat anymore. Interesting things happen at internet scale with regulation. For example, you guys won't know anything about this, but there was a time in the past, in the early days of the internet, where people used to download movies and TV shows that they hadn't paid for. It was a disgusting pastime that some people had, right? But regulators eventually found out about that and they made it illegal and so people stopped doing it overnight, right? Of course that didn't happen because regulation is one thing, but you need to be able to police it, you need to be able to enforce that regulation. And when you've got a critical mass of people doing something online where there's no perceived victim, where you're not causing any damage, it's very difficult to pull that regulation through. So I'm, I'm not knocking regulators, we need them for some things. You know, when I get on an aeroplane, I'd like to know that the pilot has a license. That'd be fairly useful. I'd like to know that the airplane's been serviced recently. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool too. And it's a regulator that's going to make sure that those things have happened. But when it comes to Bitcoin, I think in the short term, regulators have a big role to play. Of course, there's a lot of deliberation around legal tender. We don't have a country that's declared cryptocurrency as legal tender yet, which means that you have to accept it as a repayment of debt and that you can pay your tax with it. That hasn't happened. But ultimately, in the long term, it doesn't really matter what the regulator has to say about it. Okay, so we've got a comedian in the room. Who's Lulu Sankara? Where are you? In the back there. Okay, that's a great question. Are you ready, guys? So who are the brains behind hashtag blockchain tech? And how do we know that they are not associated with the hashtag triple M guy who robbed the innocent? <laughs> so nobody and everybody is behind blockchain. Maybe we can break it down. Like, There's blockchain, a technology that was developed by multiple cryptographers and multiple people over multiple years. If you didn't have certain things happen in the 60s, there were certain things that wouldn't have happened in the 80s and wouldn't have happened in the 90s to eventually get to the point of where we could have cryptographically secure money without the risk of copy and pasting of that digital asset. But once that technology exists, it's the same like, oh, we have the internet now. It doesn't mean like every website on there you can suddenly just trust. So as to the point of Triple M, that's unfortunately one of the first use cases is some of these criminal elements. I think by nature just criminals' business models are always under threat, right? So they're early adopters. And you saw this with early days of the internet. They moved quickly and you had people you know, selling guns on the internet, for instance, until regulation thankfully stepped in or you know, the world woke up and how to, how to avoid that. But unfortunately, that does exist. And a lot of people will come with sales pitches and say, 
oh, we have a new digital currency or a new investment scheme and pepper it with buzzwords and invest, 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 and they run off with your money. And it's basically because you let everything go out the window and comes with where am I going to send this money? Do but just to provide some context, for those of you who haven't heard of Triple M, this is a global criminal syndicate. <laughs> it's a pyramid scheme, Ponzi scheme of sorts that targets the very poorest of the poor and steals money. Let's not make bones about it. But it has nothing to do with Bitcoin. Triple M has latched onto Bitcoin as a very convenient currency. But when somebody steals rands from somebody, I mean, let's say there's a cash in transit heist. You don't go, oh, shit, there's a problem with the rand. This rand thing has a problem. People are stealing it. Yeah, the rands are are inconsequential. But the criminals, the problem is perhaps with the security of the cash in transit company, etc. And I think we conflate these issues very often. So I had carte blanche, uh, which is apparently a TV show of some renown. (laughs) They called me a couple of years ago when I was still working at Luno. And they said, we want you to come on and talk about Bitcoin. And I said, cool, you know, in what context? And they said, well, we want to talk about how Bitcoin is funding terrorism. You know, terrorists use Bitcoin. And I was like, well, I'm not going to come on to carte blanche and talk about that. I mean, are you talking about the fact that terrorists wear T-shirts as well? Uh, You know, of course terrorists use Bitcoin because they had such a problem with money before that Bitcoin has solved. And I think with any new technology, we tend to draw these false associations. Bitcoin is not facilitating crime. I mean, obviously, they're ransomware and things that we didn't have before that make use of Bitcoin. But criminals didn't have a money problem before that Bitcoin's come along and magically solved. Bitcoin certainly isn't the root of the problem. Uh, And so you kind of need to disassociate associate those two things. As for who's behind the blockchain, as Van alluded to, thousands of developers around the world right now are behind the blockchain as a technology. But where it came from, it really was a group effort. There's the pseudonymous character of Satoshi Nakamoto that wrote the Bitcoin white paper and, and gave birth to what today is the Bitcoin network conceptually. But it was brought to fruition by a group of computer scientists that built it. Satoshi certainly wasn't the first cryptographer. In fact, the first white paper on cryptography for triple entry accounting dates back to 1989. And this is another fundamental misunderstanding with technology. Technology, innovation, anything human beings do, it doesn't come from one person, right? Steve Jobs didn't make the iPhone. <laughs> a group of hundreds of engineers made the iPhone. Elon Musk did not create Tesla on his own, right? He just managed to get people who are frankly smarter than him around him to help him solve these problems. Groups of people affecting, societies decide whether or not we're going to play games. And Bitcoin is one of the most beautiful illustrations of what happens when a group of good people get together for a good cause. Okay, so let's get into the meat and potatoes. So are we in a bubble, right? So many of you are trading, in fact, probably 80% of this room uh, are currently trading in cryptocurrencies. So I was on, uh, obviously, Twitter, I think it was this week, earlier this week, and Simon put out this tweet, which got like an insane amount of retweets, right? So for those of you that didn't see it, I'm going to read it to you. So here it goes, quote, $8, it's a bubble. $60, definitely a bubble. $200, Wait until this pops. $1,000. It's like tulips, guys. Total bubble. $2,700. Bubble, you guys. Bubble. <laughs> and that's a 4000 <laughs> No, it's a 4000 exactly. So for all the traders in the room, at what level do you decide that it is a bubble or that it was a bubble? Well, I'd say, yes, it is very frothy and it is probably a bubble. It is The price of Bitcoin will go down, quote me on that. But what will also happen is it will go back up and go down and go back up. It's an incredibly volatile currency and that's just because of normal market trading effects. 
people have their like eureka moment of understanding how digital currencies work and what the potential holds. And some people go overboard, they put too much money into it. And then when there's a downturn, they get all paranoid and worried and they start selling, 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 drives the price down. I don't think those are going to stop in the short term. Looking at the longer term trend, it's pretty clear what is happening. But my advice, at least unsolicited advice in terms of Bitcoin and acquiring it or trading it, is if you're not a trader... Don't trade it and don't go crazy. Take like 100 rand, 500 rand, 1,000 rand, whatever you can lose, buy Bitcoin. You'll learn a lot in the process. And do the same thing next month, no matter if the price is up or down, and maybe the same thing the month thereafter and the month thereafter. That's a responsible way in any case of buying ETFs or mutual funds or, or any sort of thing that you're buying. But yes, it is very frothy. People get super excited. It will go down, but it will go up again. So I'm going to go out on a massive limb here. And in fact, I would love somebody in the audience to disagree with me. But I'm going to say Bitcoin isn't a bubble. And the way we know it's not a bubble is because it hasn't popped yet, right? You can't define something as a bubble until it pops. And then everybody goes, oh, you see, I told you it's a bubble. Never mind the five other bubbles I called that haven't popped, right? To a degree, all money is a bubble that haven't popped. It's narrative bullshit. It's a game we play, right? We found shiny rocks on this planet and we decided that they were more valuable than the other rocks because they're shiny and they conduct electricity slightly better, right? <laughs> and then we based our entire monetary system on that. And as if that wasn't ludicrous enough, we moved off of that onto the bullshit standard for money. And now we've got cryptocurrency. And it's also just a narrative. It's a story that we all mutually agree upon or we don't. Is it a bubble? Maybe. But we can only say that when it pops, right? And so it's, it's kind of a crazy discussion. As Vanna said, the price will go down and then it'll go up and then it'll go down again. But none of us can predict the future. None of us know where this is going. Are we all going to play this game or aren't we? And where I really laugh my ass off is when I get into deliberations with people on Twitter who treat economics as a science. We've got this idea in the 21st century that business and economics are sciences, right? Because some schools have called them that. It's not a science. It has some laws like supply and demand, which is like the theory of gravity, but economics is not a science and when you move it into cryptography and into cryptocurrency anything we think we've discovered about the laws of economics in the 20th century revolving around oil flows and resources and whatever they just fly out of the window so i would love to be challenged on this point i'd love somebody to disagree with me probably a macro economist but it's such a crazy discussion and it's pointless sorry does anybody want to disagree with simon please disagree with him anyone anyone just go for it just have a view there you go <laughs> I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not an economist. Is that Robin? Is it, is it Robin? Okay. Robin what? <laughs> okay, right. she's carring now. Okay. I just want to add to that. On a long enough timeline, all currencies have zero value. Every currency that existed before that doesn't exist today, there's been thousands, are worthless. On a long enough timeline, all currencies are worthless. What about gold? It's, you know, gold's not a currency. Eventually, we live in a universe of entropy. Like... Yeah, gold might very well one day be worthless on a long enough timeline. Now, yeah. that, that gives me a, a, mm. an, an easy escape. But Bitcoin could also become worthless, but it could probably just evolve into something else. This podcast was recorded, composed for, and mixed by Audio Militia. Leaders in composition, final mix, and sound design. For more info, visit audiomilitia.com. Okay, are you ready for this? Wait. Right, because I, I saw a tweet, 
and I'm going to answer that tweet. This is how okay. it begins. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, the first thing I'm going to say, though, is today I had a meeting, and I asked the person if they have any Bitcoin. And they said, no, I don't have any Bitcoin. I don't know what it is, but I need to get some. Because I keep hearing about it. Everyone's talking about this thing. I don't know what it is. I don't know how to get it, but I need it. Okay, so let's just put that into the context of things. Now, is Bitcoin in a bubble? Okay, so recently we had that Bitcoin cash split. Are you guys all aware of that? You guys all Bitcoin traders? And I'm sure you're wondering what's going on. Now, what we have are two Bitcoin forks. And if you had Bitcoin before and you got Bitcoin cash and you got Bitcoin, awesome. That's cool. I don't know what decision you're going to make now, what to do with both, but I just hope you're holding both. Now, what does it mean for people who are coming into the system? If you were to tell somebody right now, buy Bitcoin, you're going to have to answer the question, which one? So I think, and this is my opinion, and it's based on the tweet about what is my prediction about Bitcoin Cash, is that Bitcoin isn't a bubble. And it's one of those two chains. Because what's going to come next is we're going to eventually be, over the next few months, what we're going to be seeing is a sort of battle between Bitcoin Core and Bitcoin Cash. And eventually they're going to equalize in terms of hashing power and in terms of wallets and exchanges that are supporting it. And the playing ground is going to become level. And then it's going to come down to the usability of those two coins. Which one has the highest fees? Which ones take the longest to confirm? And that's the level playing ground we're going to see. So one of those two coins is in a bubble. Because, of course, you know, we can see how altcoins and we saw how Ether Classic, you know, they're still around. People are still speculating on those things. But if you've got a choice right now between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, and Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin, whichever one, one is cheaper to use and one is quicker to use. Are you going to stay on both? Are you going to decide to go for one on a living playing field? So what's going to happen over the months to come is a very interesting time, and you better be thinking very carefully about whether you dump cash like everybody's talking about or you hold them both. And I actually believe, and this is my, my opinion, and this is not investment advice, but if you're thinking about the long-term prospects of one of these two coins, I have a very optimistic view on Bitcoin Cash. Segregated Witness is an opt-in technology, and we've seen how in the history of Bitcoin, how opt-in technologies take months, if ever, to start being incorporated in a, in a full-scale way. Remember also what we're about to embark on to solve the volume problem, you know, the transaction problem with Bitcoin, is we hope that this new technology called Lightning Network is going to start making transactions quicker and faster and it's going to solve, solve all our problems. We don't know what that is yet. We haven't seen it in the, in, in the field. We don't know how Lightning Network is going to solve all these problems. So you're taking a very speculative bet if you're deciding to opt into Bitcoin Core right now that you hope that a technology that has not been proven, it's like a new tech company comes along and says, I've got this fantastic idea. It's going to change the world. Invest in my company. You're going to have to think carefully about that technology. And of course, you're not going to bet the farm on that technology. Bitcoin Cash, however, has solved the problem instantly with one go by making those blocks much bigger. Now suddenly we see fees drop considerably and confirmation times drop considerably. So I actually believe that Bitcoin Core probably is in a bubble. And what we're going to see is value shifting out of Bitcoin Core. Unfortunately, because of that girl this morning, this woman I spoke to today, people are still buying, people are still getting in like mad. And we have not yet seen the price of Bitcoin. And I literally think Bitcoin, whichever one, will be a million rand one day. And I think that's even laughably low. Okay, so at $4,000, a bubble, no ways. Drops wow. the mic. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, well, what can you say to that? Maybe a bubble. <laughs> Probably not. Dump everything. Well, if, if, Bitcoin, if Bitcoin takes as much as 5% of the market cap of gold, if people say that, let's just say the next generation with some disposable income and they want to store money, say that, well, we don't really trust current financial systems, we don't trust banks, we don't want to keep a piece of metal underneath our mattress or with an institution that we need to trust, 5% put their money in Bitcoin, the price would be astronomical. Which one that is remains to be seen. I think as with everything, it's network effects. They are better plugs than these stupid three-pronged ones we have in South Africa. But everybody has it, therefore everybody uses it. So there might be a better Bitcoin or a better digital currency out there, but the one that's got the furthest reach, and right now that's Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, will probably be the winner. That's the one I put my money on. BlackBerry invented the smartphone, and we are there now. I mean, it's fun to play around with the numbers. We're only going to ever have 21 million Bitcoin. It's designed to be deflationary. You guys have heard the story, blah, blah. So there isn't enough Bitcoin for everybody in the world to have one right now. We've got 7 billion people, and we'll have 21 million Bitcoin by like when? 2140, around there. But the interesting thing is that Bitcoin has been designed so that each single Bitcoin is divisible by a million smaller units called Satoshis. So just like you can split a rand into 100 cents, you can split a Bitcoin into a million Satoshis. And when you look at what Bitcoin was imagined to be as a representation of global finance, again, we're, we're nowhere near the ceilings. So you can say whatever you want. You can say that Bitcoin is going to dip to a value of zero because another cryptocurrency is going to surpass it or because sovereign blockchains will make it irrelevant. Maybe. And I read a white paper that made a very strong and rational case for $5.8 million per Bitcoin, right? You split that out by a million units. It's not so crazy anymore as, as a single Satoshi. When the speculation ranges from zero to $5.8 million fucking dollars per coin, <laughs> like who knows where we're headed, right? But a lot of thinking went into this thing. Whoever Satoshi was, and it's not Craig Wright. Lorian and I have disagreed. He's, Lorian, he's Australian. We discussed this last time. All right? Doesn't have the keys to the Genesis block. Doesn't know how Bitcoin works. Has bad hair. Anyway, <laughs> whoever Satoshi was had put a lot of thinking into the dynamics, if you will, the modeling of Bitcoin. It was the definitive white paper. And to be honest, we've had literally thousands of white papers come out in the wake of ICOs and token sales, etc. since then. I'm not a mathematician, but you kind of have to start delving into the dynamics of these things. There is yet to be a white paper as well conceived, as rationally thought out, <laughs> and as long-term in its scope as Bitcoin. And in that sense, certainly is still the gold standard and thought leader. Cool, so the feed isn't updating, so there's actually a shitload of questions that are coming through, so I'm going to try to pick a few more uh, more frequently. This one's from Samir Saab. Where are you? Samir, okay, cool. So he's basically got a question here about altcoins, right? So he says, I mean, there's over a 1,000 cryptocurrencies out there at the moment uh, based on current numbers, but he says, what are your views on the proliferation of altcoins, and what does the future of the crypto market look like? Could you pick or would you pick a couple of winners. As with Bitcoin, it's very difficult to say. I th Bitcoin is merely the first one, the biggest one, the one that's understood by most regulators, most bank, most consumers. Most people have it. It's compatible with most wallets. It's accepted by most stores. So it's, and I'm going to go it's back. It's the only one on Luna. It's, 
<laughs> we'll get to that in a it's second. A fucking coincidence. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> so, so back to the network effect. It's that email that everybody has now. There are better ways of transmitting communication, maybe than email. But everybody has email in its current form. That's, that's where we are right now with Bitcoin. Now let's look forward because it's based on a technology and technologies improve and Bitcoin itself has improved a lot. But there's other currencies that don't come with a lot of infighting or anybody can create a new digital currency. So I'm very much interested in ones that serve certain use cases. I think there's interesting things that Ripple could do in terms of settlement of assets between different institutions. I'm very positive on Ethereum, not as a currency, but the Ethereum network is very interesting. IOTA was mentioned earlier. It's very interesting. Where it's going to end up, again, you, you're going to have the spectrum between zero and infinite. Well, the spectrum is super cock, Ripple, and like pretty awesome Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, it really is a massive experiment. We don't know how any of these things will end up. I'm a massive fan of Ethereum, and I think it's filling in a very important niche in terms of smart contracts. Does it compete with Bitcoin as a store of value? No. I love the way it's been conceived of in terms of gas and the way that it compensates for compute. If you look at Ethereum as a great example of the fact that one human being can't keep up with what's happening in the space. I can't keep up with what's happening in just Ethereum or just Bitcoin. And we have over a thousand different cryptocurrencies now. Dash is interesting. Neo is interesting. IOTA is fucking interesting because we've got this whole tangle concept that takes mining out of the equation and has a blockless chain. But really there's so much happening in each of these cryptocurrencies that you really need to invest a serious amount of time to get your head around the concept <laughs> before even seeing the use cases and the applications that need to be tested in the real world. So I kind of tend to follow the Warren Buffett kind of idea that you only invest in things you understand. I feel like I kind of understand Bitcoin and I kind of understand Ethereum and I would love to trade it. That's on, literally what I was know. about to say. Like, um, don't invest in something yeah. you don't understand. I understand Ripple, which is why I think it's so cuck. Um, <laughs> and why I don't invest in it. No, actually, I got some for free. And <laughs> just, just something else. If you do buy a little bit of Bitcoin consistently, Bitcoin is incredible. Like, one of the use cases of Bitcoin is you can buy altcoins. So, Take 5% of your Bitcoin and go first learn about Ethereum and Ripple and IOTA and everything else and what they are trying to solve. If they're really doing something significantly and drastically new, don't base it on the exchange rate changes. Don't buy Bitcoin based on the exchange rate changes either. What are the top five right now? Let's go through them. Bitcoin's 70 billion, Ethereum's 30.5. I used to have them ordered. Litecoin, 2.6 billion. I mean, Litecoin's interesting because it's yeah. basically a good test bed for... Boring, though. Yeah, very much so. NEM, 2.268 billion. And Dash is doing really well today. You skip Ripple there on purpose. <laughs> Ripple's, Ripple's there. It's, uh, what, 10.6 billion at the moment. It's, it's easily third, right? Yeah. And then Bitcoin Cash. Actually, Bitcoin Cash is bigger than Ripple today. Yeah. Cool. Uh, next question is from David Leslie. He says, what are the most promising applications of blockchain technology aside from cryptocurrency? And I think it's an interesting question 
that uh, we haven't explored, simply because if you think about Amazon and these giant internet companies, they essentially built their empires on free protocols like HTTP, TCP, IP, etc. And when you look at Bitcoin, that is a protocol in and of itself, right? And when you look at Ethereum, you've got smart contracts and essentially the ability for a company or anybody in this room and furthermore around the world to essentially write decentralized applications, right, into the blockchain. So my view is, and this is probably echoing what Fazam was saying, he was saying, if a company stands up and says, we have implemented a blockchain solution in our business. It's the same as saying back in the late 90s when email came around that we use email and no one else in the world can use email. So my question is, are there any proven use cases for startups potentially working with the blockchain? Obviously just echoing the context here on ICOs, which are not the working product. And there's another question here from Stu van der Fien about identity and asset liability or transfer. What's the actual, where's the proof? I mean, is, I, mean I know that's coming, but is there any references that you guys can share with us? There's a lot of interesting things that have happened so far, and those include the UN using um, the Ethereum blockchain to send money to refugees. That has actually happened. It might not be the sexiest use of the technology in terms of innovation, but it's certainly in terms of impacting human life is one of the most meaningful implementations of blockchain we've seen so far, how effective it is. Uh, who knows? There's Project Ubu here in South Africa, which is working on a universal basic income system using blockchain technology, ERC20 tokens on, on Ethereum, to be specific. That's very exciting, again, because of what the social impact might be. But I mean, really, it's anything you can imagine that involves human trust. I met a Canadian band in 2014, I think it was, 22 Hertz. They were the first band to write music into the blockchain. So using the colored coin principle in Bitcoin, they'd actually encoded sheet music into the blockchain. Because one of the things the blockchain gives you, of course, is immutability in time as well. One of the big problems with contracts in the way we used to do law is, uh, or the way we still do law, of course, is that you know you can kind of put any date you want on a contract and decide when you actually signed it. <laughs> uh, when you lock something into the blockchain, it becomes immutable in terms of oh, its timestamp as well. So that's very interesting for contracts. So really the sky's the limit. You can write an antinatural contract into the blockchain. You can make it self-executing if you've got oracles for the information on Ethereum. The other thing that's interesting again to IOTA is, is how we create an internet of value for the internet of things. So if you imagine everything becoming economically active from light bulbs to your fridge to your car, you could have a self-driving car in the future and you probably Probably will. And when you get to work during the day, you won't want to park your car because that's wasting its potential. You'll sit at work and let your car drive around in a network like Uber, picking up people and dropping them off. But what makes that happen economically could be automated using the blockchain. So using something like IOTA, your car could have a wallet. It's getting money from passengers when it needs to recharge, because it'll probably be electric. It could go to a recharging station. It could pay for its own electricity. The recharging station is earning an income. It can pay for the resources that it needs to function. Wi-Fi routers could share internet connectivity and get paid for it, and they could buy bandwidth. Light bulbs could pay for the electricity that they consume. It really is fascinating once you get into this whole, what the IOTA guys call the tangle of the internet of things what we thought of as very dumb machines before paying each other for transactions i think those are the use cases that will probably emerge first lorian any views 
Like I spent the last three years researching that question, you know, and um, you keep coming up with all these use cases and it always boils down to the business case. You know, so often you think, oh, I can use a blockchain for this. And then you realize, but it doesn't really make business sense. And so it's very hard. And in fact, even today, even in spite of all those cool things that are potentially likely on a blockchain, we haven't seen any of them come out. So right now, every single thing we can say about a blockchain all is just hope and optimism and hype, mostly. But I do think that there's one thing about a blockchain that's not currency that is actually quite interesting because, you know, you do have an immutable ledger and uh, you touched on the idea of timestamping. So that's interesting, but also just the idea of verifying data, you know, where there's this notion that technical notion where you can hash information. So you, you take information, you put it into a blender and out spits a number. You can actually put that into a blockchain and then later on if you want to prove that that data hasn't changed, you can take the data, put it into the machine and if it spits out the same number then you know it's the same. So maybe the blockchain could be used to just be this ledger that we use to verify data. To make it first about Bitcoin and then not about Bitcoin. So the two things that Bitcoin does is it's a transfer of value, means of payment, and it's a store of value. Now, the reason why I believe Bitcoin became popular is because people had issues with transfer of money and the store of money, and Bitcoin is just money that does those two things. But blockchains can represent anything of value. So I think the biggest use cases will come with the proof of ownership of something or the transfer of something. Now, what those are, it's again, it's again like, let's say we're in 1975 and I tell you that Uber is going to come one day. There's this whole crazy amount of things that we can think about, but the practical use cases will be the ones where it hurts people most today. Mm, paying for pornography. <laughs> there's, yeah, that's one of the use cases. Very good, Simon. That might be. Uh, I, mean, I don't know. There's it could pot, be. There's pot coin, for instance, because there's a big problem with payments in the cannabis industry. So there's all these little use cases, but the ones that will become mainstream are the ones where people have trouble with the current method of storing something of value, proving ownership of that storage, or transferring it without the need of a central party. Right now, it's money. Next, I don't know. Warren Buffett only invests in things he understands, and I think that's very important when it comes to investing in anything. Uh, when it comes to ICOs, I absolutely agree with you. Is everybody here familiar with ICOs? Does anybody want us to explain what an ICO is? Okay, so these are initial coin offerings, and at a very high level, the idea is, imagine if you could um, make your company's equity available to the public from day one. You could just say, you can buy a share in my company, and you essentially issue your own cryptocurrency in effect. You come up with your own token that, in a way, represents equity in the company, and you let people speculate on that. So they can buy a share in your company, and they can go and speculate on that on open exchanges, and there are various forms of ICOs. Now, the most famous ICO so far is besides for Ethereum itself, arguably, was the DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. At a very high level, the idea was we have a company with no board, it just has curators. The company itself is a contract. Anybody can buy shares in this company and anybody who does buy shares can then decide in the direction of the company. To cut a long story short, the DAO raised $150 million in a month. That's the first time it made the news. The second time it made the news was when a, a hacker made off with 75 million of those, those dollars um, because they managed to exploit the smart contract, right? Bad idea? No. Badly executed idea, right? Um, but since then, we've seen even more ridiculous things happening. $150 million in a month was the biggest crowd sale in history, but Bancor did that in 12 minutes, right? We've had companies literally raise in excess of $150 million in 12 minutes, based on what? As you alluded to, not very much, right? 
in some cases, literally just a flashy website and a dream. But I think it's easy to be cynical about this. And you're right, it's very different from regulated equities. And there's a whole discussion to be had about whether or not these are securities and whether or not they should be regulated in the first place. But I think if one puts an optimistic spin on it, you've got people now who honestly would not have gotten funding before. You can have a business idea now and you can have the potential to raise millions of dollars if you can make a compelling enough case for that business. I don't know how many of you have started your own businesses. It's very easy to talk about entrepreneurship until you've done it. Who has started your own business, right? You know how important the story is, the narrative is in that business, right? You have to be able to sell that business to investors, to your team, to the people that are going to make this thing happen. If you can do that very well, you can get the funding to kind of execute on it as well. So are there a lot of chances raising millions of dollars and then going and buying Lamborghinis in South America? probably. <laughs> but we've created this new system where anybody can be a venture capitalist, where you don't need permission. You don't have to be living in the Silicon Valley bubble if we talk about bubbles. You don't have to be in the old boys club to raise money anymore. Anybody, anywhere, if they can sell the idea well enough, can raise money to get it off the ground. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of bullshit. There are a lot of ideas that are getting money that don't deserve it. And you're right, when it comes to the way that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and those guys look at putting money into, into ventures, it certainly is a completely different ballgame that we haven't figured out yet. But I think there's also cause to be massively optimistic about where we get to once we get through the hype curve and we start seeing that meaningful plateau of usage of the ICO model. The other thing is that there's a difference between investment and speculation. So what Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett do is you invest in companies that have cash flow that add value, that maybe pay dividends, that, that solve something. When you buy, and I know ICOs is an investment in company, but when you buy Bitcoin, you speculate. When you buy current, when you have RAND in your bank account, you're speculating. If you buy gold, you are speculating. So those two should be separated. People shouldn't think they're investing in Bitcoin. They're speculating in it. And a lot of, there's a lot of speculation with some of these ICOs because they have the properties of a coin, but that what you are actually buying is a share in a company. And what it's going to be at the end of the day, you should not invest in what you don't understand. So, but, but, but I think there's also an important distinction to be made between these tokens that are just issued because somebody's realized they can get rich really quick and the tokens that are issued because they have utility. So examples would be StoreJ or Filecoin, yeah. right? The idea is that, you know, you all use Dropbox or something like Google Drive, right? You store your files in the cloud. The idea is that what we could do is take people's spare hard drive space and if they're online, we can take the spare hard drive space of many computers all over the world and we can make that space available to users to store files. So for you, the experience will be the same as Dropbox, but your file will actually be encrypted so nobody will be able to see the contents of the file and it'll be stored on excess hard drive space of people all over the world. But then those people will be compensated for storing your file using a derivative currency like Filecoin or StoreJ. So it really depends on the structure of the smart contract. Some of these things are based on nothing. Some of these companies really don't need their own tokens. Others have high utility. I don't know if we perfectly addressed what you were saying, if you'd like to give us some bounce back. But I think it's also because there's such a variance in the kind of ICOs and the kind of tokens that they generate, it becomes a very difficult thing to kind of address in, in vast sweeps of generalization. Well, particularly to Bitcoin, and as was mentioned earlier, they have the power to control maybe what certain people, where they can use 
the Bitcoin or where they can enter into Bitcoin, where they can convert between that taxable money that they control and into this private money that they can't control. But because of the nature of Bitcoin, it can't be banned. Countries have learned this. Russia initially said, we're banning Bitcoin. And they had to, two years later, say like, oops, we realize we can't. So I think the biggest pressure would be on whoever, it's like, maybe it'll be a bit like whack-a-mole. There'll be a problem that arises, like one digital currency exchange or, or, or storage wallet that might become too big. So the government can, for instance, come to a company like Luno and say, we don't like Bitcoin, we're revoking your business license in South Africa. You're not an entity anymore, and therefore you lose your, your bank accounts, and you can't accept payments to do this conversion between the two. That's where they're interested in right now, is in, in whomever gets bigger. But Bitcoin itself can't be shut down. Now, there's clever ways that you can like make it more difficult for people, but again... Uh, Network effects and the speed of the growth of technology in the and what's what's coming. It's it's not much that can be done. Yeah, I mean, you know, governments could, for example, control a good chunk of mining power potentially. You know, when you look at how how Bitcoin was conceived and the way that the algorithms hardened, that's probably not likely. But I think it's fair to say that if there was a concerted effort, especially if the world governments banded together to do it, they probably could do something about Bitcoin. But it'll cost them $150 billion. Yeah, sure, dollars and sure, then, sure. And sure. Then so the incentive would have to be huge. And you know, none of us are economists, so I think we're thinking of it more from a technical perspective. But I like to imagine a future where you kind of have to be compelled to pay your taxes. Because, again, it's similar to software piracy, right? I bring this up often, or, or rather content piracy, because I think it's, the discussion is germane. There really is nothing the regulator can do to stop you from downloading Game of Thrones and not paying for it, right? They can say it's illegal, but they can't really stop you. What really happened is that that created an opportunity, right? And companies like Apple realized that the only thing that beats free is convenience, right? Everybody was downloading TV shows. It was a free-for-all. Nobody was paying for it. Steve Jobs and co. came along and said, you know what? It's not that people don't want to pay for music. It's just that they've got a more convenient way of getting it from Napster. If we make it even more convenient than Napster, they'll pay for it. And I kind of, being an optimist, I see government services moving that way. It's like we'll go through a phase where people go, oh, I've got Bitcoin. So... GFY, I'm not going to pay my taxes anymore. <laughs> right? You don't even know the money exists. And that'll, that'll happen for a while. And then we're going to see a new breed of government that actually gets you to the point where you want to pay your taxes. You know, where, where the services are so good that you're willing to invest in them. You're like, oh, I want this thing and I will pay for it. And where it's, and that and could where be it's a integrated. Road. Hmm? It could be where it's integrated too. Like I, I go and renew my car license. I pay for it in a digital currency. The government receives it. Immediately it can be allocated very efficiently to wherever our money needs to go for the roads. You know, this for tolls and this should be for support. Yeah. It's like I'm building a palace in KwaZulu-Natal with golden toilets. No, you can't have money for that. Sorry. <laughs> New road, kiff. Have some. Yeah, well, first I want to like just squash a little myth there that Bitcoin is not anonymous. Bitcoin is not anonymous. Bitcoin is not anonymous. It's, it's pseudonymous, it's, right? Exactly. So what that means is that when you send Bitcoin, it... It was mentioned earlier in mining, but very briefly, when I send Bitcoin from Vanna's wallet to Simon's wallet, my wallet announces to the Bitcoin network, I'm sending one Bitcoin from my wallet to his. The entire network can verify this wallet sent money to that wallet. They don't necessarily know the ownership, they don't know who I am, but they know that that wallet 
at some point in time sent money to another wallet. And they, they earn a little bit of, of money for doing so. But um, as, as to your question, that's good like when the money is in Bitcoin. But at some stage, Simon wants to use that Bitcoin. He wants to go to Alexander Bar and pay for his drink or his play that he's watching there. And at that point, it would become known or it could become known who the owner is. And that's the same problem that you have at the entry and exit, at all entry and exit points into digital currencies. So what happens when, when you go to Luno is we need to follow existing financial laws. Like I said earlier, e-commerce is not regulated, Bitcoin is not regulated, it doesn't make it illegal. But it means there's a big responsibility on us to make sure that we are not facilitating the other side of, of, a, of a malicious deal. That we're not bringing in somebody who is uh, laundering money, who wants to sell their Bitcoin, and you come in and you want to buy a Bitcoin, and you buy it from that person, so you're on the, the, on the one side of a, of a bad deal. We need to make sure that that's not in the system. So everybody who gets onboarded, it's basically like joining a bank just without the pain. You download an app and take a photo of your ID. But yes, that does get recorded. And it gets checked against terrorist databases. Uh, you know, should this person should this person be allowed to have it? And it gets checked against their bank account. Or do they interact with the financial world and other places? But your identity will become known. Okay, so I'll tackle the the founders being anonymous. You know, it comes down to the personality of the person who did this. And at the end of the day, I think I know who it is. Who is it, Lorian? <laughs> Tell us. Move on, move on. But, you know, uh, that person decided that that's what they would do. Also, if you just think about who that person is and what they have, you know, they've got a lot of Bitcoins. And also, there must have been some wacky genius, you know, who probably didn't like limelight and all that sort of thing. So, you know, it's very hard to, to know why they stayed anonymous, but thank God they did. Because what we've seen is for the first time ever, and it will never happen again, we had a cryptocurrency that could be bootstrapped and suddenly become money without there being a leader. And uh, we see how a lot of these currencies fail because of the fact that they always have a team or a founder or a foundation or something like that that uh, comes along and says, look, we've got this new technology and it's great. And suddenly everybody looks at them to guide them through this process. You know, and everything that they say, and Vitalik Buterin from Ethereum is a clear case, an example. When Ethereum split, it came down to a decision really from those guys because everybody was saying, what do we do, Vitalik? What do we do? And he had to make that very, very hard decision to do that. And it just shows you how as soon as there is a leader in anything, we look to that leader when we are confused and, and humans make mistakes. And there'll never be another currency like Bitcoin that comes along that suddenly becomes money and we'll consider money that doesn't have this leader. So it comes down to the personality and uh, uh, what's so important about Bitcoin and why I think Bitcoin is going to become our digital gold standard is because we don't have a flawed human that we all look to desperately to make decisions for us. Mm. So uh, it's all for the best. And thank goodness it is. Bitcoin doesn't need a leader. That's what makes it, what's the what's the powerful thing. It doesn't need a central banker. Mm. You raised some very interesting questions. So the first one we can only speculate on. We don't know why Satoshi chose to be pseudonymous. As Lorian said, we think it's a really good idea that that he did. We know it's a he because some of the first computer scientists that collaborated with him on the Bitcoin core spoke to him on the phone and they say that he had a male voice. So unless he's changed that, because he could have. Satoshi is male. There are a lot of good reasons why a decentralized system like this, you would want to re remain anonymous. And a lot of it has to do with story, which 
again, it's easy to be cynical about this stuff, right? It's easy to poo-poo the role of narrative. But language is the most powerful thing human beings possess. In fact, it's the only differentiator we have as a species, right? If you dive into the anthropology and you dive into the history of our species, what sets us apart, what gave us the edge over Neanderthal and Homo erectus was our ability to tell stories about things that don't exist. Nation states do not exist except in our mythology. Money does not exist in our mythology. It's a story we make up about things that aren't true that we use as an organizing principle, right? The reason we could organize around things like Neanderthal that were governed by Dunbar's number, right? They could only act in troops of 100 to 150 individuals. Human beings could act in bigger armies because we could tell a story about the myth of the Roman legion. And suddenly, I didn't need to know who you were. I didn't have to remember your face. If I knew you were a Roman legion and I was a Roman legion, I had a common truth to act upon, right? That's the power of story. That's the power of narrative. It's the only thing that makes society possible. So we can throw shit at it all day like it doesn't matter, but it's actually the only thing that matters. And money is part of that story. We choose to believe in governments. Governments don't take authority. We give it to them, right? We choose our stories, and money is a part of that story. Bitcoin had to tell a better story if it was going to get anywhere. And unfortunately, human beings don't tend towards stories that are coming from other human beings that are still alive. We find the most magic in the narratives that come from magical places, from human beings that may or may not have existed, from gods and demons and from pseudonymous characters like Satoshi Nakamoto. When they come from a human like Vitalik Buterin, our cynicism flares up, it's suddenly demystified, it's more difficult to see why we should be compelled to believe in this. Yes, business models help make a mathematical case to a rational mind, which is perhaps 0.1% of the population, right? That was your first question. Are there any financial institutions that will accept Bitcoin as a security? I'm not aware of any. There might be some very risky ones out there that will accept it. Can you... Sh Nedbank? I don't know. No, no, I don't. <laughs> In the house? Um, and then your other question was surrounding shorting Bitcoin. You can absolutely do that. Um, so some exchanges like Bitfinex, which is one of the biggest in the States, they have very good um, trading, margin trading, etc. facilities, and you can use them to short Bitcoin quite actively. Otherwise, you can short Bitcoin the way you did in the olden days of shorting anything, right? Lend it from somebody, set it on a promise, etc. Cool. Guys, thank you so much for your time. I just want to... Thanks. So I want to say thanks to Simon, Dingle, Vanner, Van Royen, and Lorian Gamaroff. Nedbank, thanks for hosting this. I think it's been a, a great event. How have you guys enjoyed it? And uh, we will be holding future events in Cape Town and Johannesburg, so just keep in touch with me however you choose to do so. And you've been listening to The Matt Brown Show. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Oh, yeah, sorry. There's drinks, beers, food, all provided by Nedbank. I know you guys must be thirsty. I'll see you up at the top. Thanks. So there you have it, guys. Just a quick note to say thank you. The turnout was overwhelming, and the feedback from attendees has been amazingly positive. Just a few things. My Twitter feed on that night was literally flooded with questions from the audience, and unfortunately, we could not get to answer all of them. So with that in mind, Digital Kung Fu has just launched an online platform for the cryptocurrency and blockchain community of South Africa. 
Now, the online community can be accessed here. That's community.digitalkungfu.co.za. That's community.digitalkungfu.co.za. And it's the place where all your questions can be answered as developments within the cryptocurrency space develop locally and abroad. Now, if you are trading, working with the blockchain in your business or corporate, or whether you are simply interested in the subject, this community is for you. So go there now and register. The Matt Brown Show. This is the Matt Brown Show. Matt Brown Show. The Matt Brown Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients haiku went from a two percent share of voice globally to an 11 percent share of voice globally in only seven days if you'd like more information head on over to showworksmedia.com for more that is showworks with an x.com